yours. Good morning, everyone. As we begin Sunday school, we're going to sing Jesus Loves Even Me. I find it incredible that he loves even me. Let's sing it. 689 in your songbooks. Number 689, Jesus Loves Even Me. I am so glad that my Father in heaven Jesus loves me, I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. Though I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee. When I remember that Jesus loves me, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Oh, if there's only one song I can sing, when in his beauty I see the great King, eternity be. Oh, what a wonder that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Everybody who's glad for that, say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> I am glad for that. I don't deserve it. And sadly, neither do you. And yet he's given us love that is an everlasting love and drawn us with that everlasting love, according to Jeremiah. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Okay, Emma, it's our turn. Before you are dismissed to your Sunday school class, we are going to sing Jesus Loves Me. We'll sing the first verse, Emma and me, and then verses 2 and 3, you sing to us. Okay, so it's right across the page, 690. Okay, Emma, come on up here and help me. We'll sing Jesus Loves Me, and then they'll sing two more verses back to us, okay? You ready, kiddo? Thank you. 
I even get started here, I wanted to point out, especially since we're kind of we're recording these now, and someone might listen to this and say, boy, I've heard that before, or that's exactly what I said, or whatever. I, I have, um, I actually taught some of this, which I had forgotten about, about 20 years ago. And I used a book, it was a Sunday school module uh, put out by Bob Jones University, in copyright 1999, called How Firm a Foundation. And I thought it was very well done, so I, I've used a number of resources, including this one that many of you may have, or certainly can, can get if you don't have it, uh, a survey of Bible doctrine by Charles C. Ryrie. But the basic flow and a lot of the points are from that study, How Firm a Foundation, so I just wanted to lay that out before I got started. The authors of that were Kent Ramler and Randy Leedy. So let's get started here. The, uh, the section title is How Do We Know... The Bible is true, and, and you could put in your notes as a subtitle, inspiration, <laughs> okay, because that's going to be the focus, is the, how, the, the fact that the Bible is inspired. Um, so the question, how do we know the Bible is true? Roman numeral number one in your outline says, to the above a- question, we can ask another. How do we know any book is true? That's your blank there, is any book. How do we know any book is true? In letter A under that, this would be totally dependent on the trustworthiness of the author or source or source of the information contained in it. Um, this is interesting. I thought, sure, bear with me just a second. Hmm. Okay, well... I thought I had some points about this. But, but just for example, um, suppose you had uh, Romeo and Juliet in front of you. And it said there, by William Shakespeare. Okay, well, how do you know William Shakespeare really wrote that book? Well, back in his day, well, he claimed he did. He, his name is on it. And back in that day, most people believed it and went along with that. So really until you could be it could be proven otherwise, you assume William Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. So again, it, but it's going to be dependent on the trustworthiness of the author. Letter B under A there, Christians believe the Bible is true because it is authored by God himself who cannot lie. Um Again, that was one of the questions at the, uh, at the fair table. It's like, name three things, and we turned out there are actually four, and really you could add to that three things that God cannot do, and one of them is he cannot lie. Of course, he cannot sin, and lying is a sin, so that's one of the things he can't do. But let's look at, let's turn in your Bibles to Numbers, chapter 23, and this was actually the verse that we used at the booth um, at the table there to kind of answer this. Numbers chapter 23. And we are going to cover a lot of scripture today. So that's part of the way, that that takes time, but that's what it's all about. If we don't get into scripture, and some of these studies may not necessarily have so much. So let's let's drink this in as we have opportunity. Numbers 23. um, This is the incident where Balak had told Balaam basically to curse the Israelites, okay? So Balaam basically kind of checked in with God. God said, no, you can't do that. So let's see, starting in verse 16 there of chapter 23. 
says, Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering, and princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took his, up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, listen to me, son of Zippor. Zippor. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And then he goes on, Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. God is not a man that he should lie. He does not lie. He cannot lie. Um, you don't need to turn there. I put in your notes uh, Romans 3, 4, where it says, uh, Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. You can look at that, the context on your own. But turn, if you would, to the back of your Bible, Revelation chapter 3. Um, just a side note as you're getting there. When we were away this week, we went to Spokane, Washington, well, we stayed in Idaho and then drove to Spokane to visit with Denise's mom's cousin, which was a blessed time. Um, but uh, at, the, at, the, at the hotel in Idaho, there was a periodical, a newspaper thing out there. And I just, read, I just happened to catch one that talked about truth, about that we've lost our way of truth. And... Um, <clears throat> As I read through it, it was really hard to tell what side, what, who, what they thought truth was. And uh, at some point, I got pretty far into the article, and, and I was clued in a little bit. And his truth was not my truth. His truth was not Bible truth. But again, we went through this for two years, going over the, the previous study we have to stick with God's truth and praise God he is true. We can count on him. We can trust in him. So look at this, Revelation chapter 3, and look at verse 7. This is uh, in the, you know, when uh, the, the angels of the seven churches speak to, to him, to, uh, to John, <clears throat> as he's supposed to write these things down. Verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is True, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one no one opens. Okay, and then look down, skip down to verse fourteen. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things: says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So that was just seeing again. Now this is, of course speaking about Jesus Christ, but we know from John 1 and so forth and many other places that Jesus is God. So God is true. He cannot lie. And he is the faithful and true witness. The only one in creation who is totally faithful and true. Okay. So... um, Here we go. We believe that the Bible is true because it's authored by God himself who cannot lie. But then, number two, Roman numeral two, that's the next question that follows from that. The next logical question would be, how do we know, that's your blank, that the Bible came from God? You can say it flippantly, but how do we know that? How do we know the Bible came from God? And that is a fair question. 
I know Pastor has shared this quote before, or at least something very similar to it. Um, but actually, again, according to that how firm a foundation uh, module that I based a lot of this on, they can, it was John Wesley. He gave his proof of divine inspiration. And this is a way this is to quote him. He says, I beg leave to propose a short, clear, and strong argument to prove the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. And he makes a point, a premise that is true, that the Bible must be the invention of either good men or angels, bad men or devils, or of God. So you have three choices, good men or angels, bad men or devils, or of God. Then he goes on, it could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would nor could make a book, make a book, and tell lies all the time they are writing it, saying, thus saith the Lord, when it was their own invention. So if they were good, they couldn't do that. Number two, it would not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell for all eternity. They couldn't do that either. So, therefore, I draw this conclusion that the Bible must have been given by divine inspiration. If we have time when we're done, which I doubt we will, but if we do, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more. But I think that that's a pretty good, concise argument by John Wesley. Again, so how do you know the, the author of any book? Uh, who is the, um, the author of any book you might read? And that's where, that's where it is about Shakespeare. I knew it was on somewhere. So we already covered that. So as we look at the Bible... Does it make any claims about its own origin? Well, letter A, next under there, it says over, you have a blank, and the number is 3,800, 3,800. According to that resource that I'm, again, the uh, How Firma Foundation studies, they claim there are over 3,800 times in the Old Testament uses languages sim- similar to thus saith the Lord, the, wor- the word of the Lord came, etc. Okay, so that's a lot. Now, this is the Old Testament. 3,800 times in the Old Testament, it directly says, thus says the Lord. So that, that's pretty good evidence. So built into much of the Old Testament text is the claim of divine origin of much of what is written. The reasonable perspective, then, is to accept that claim unless there's some kind of contrary evidence to prove it false, which, of course, many have tried to do. Many have tried to prove it false. Um, But for now, let's continue to look at what the Bible testifies related to itself. So letter B, the Bible claims it is given by inspiration of God. That's your blank there, inspiration of God. A very common passage to us. Let's turn to it, though. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I guess I should have, at the very beginning, introduced, of course, this is the first module of, uh, of these, this theology series, and we're talking about bibliology here, the study of the Bible. That's our focus as we get into this. Um, okay, so 2 Timothy 3, 16 says... It might say that too, but <laughs> says all scripture, 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go here. Sit. You know, what, what is all scripture? That's important for us to know, but, but we, we take it by default, honestly, as being the Bible, but we're going to look at that in a little more detail. And in your, in your, in the, if you have this book, in this book, A Survey of Bible Doctrine by Charles C. Ryrie, his definition is as follows. God's superintendence of human, I guess that's in here, yeah, that's letter one, uh, number one, definition of inspiration. God's superintendence of human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. Got four blanks in there for you. They composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. And we'll get into this in more detail too as we go through this study, but when these things were first, the autograph, the idea of autograph or manuscript is the, the first thing that was written. When it was originally written, when Paul wrote it or when, when Luke wrote it or Matthew wrote it, when, when, when Moses wrote it, whatever, the those original documents, God guided as they wrote those things down. So uh, Ryrie, in his book, he, he went on to point out three features worth emphasizing uh, related to that definition. God superintended, but he did not dictate the material. It wasn't just like they were a machine that he just dictated, but he did superintend over it. Number two, he did use human authors in their own individual styles. And thirdly, but still, the product was in the original autographs, the original manuscripts, without error. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be covering inerrancy. We might touch on it today, but the focus will, of that will be next week on in, the inerrancy of Scripture. So, again, he, God is, not only does he not lie, but he is also all-knowing and he is perfect. So there's no mistakes, okay? In the original manuscripts, no mistakes. Okay, now, number two. Two New Testament pa- uh, passages considered together that illustrate this effectively. I really, um, I do remember this, <laughs> having taught this, and this has stuck with me. A lot of, obviously hasn't stuck with me, but this did stick with me. Let's, let's turn first to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, a little bit more towards the back of your Bible from if you were in Second Timothy. Second Peter chapter 1. Um, again, I, I just hate to not get some context here. Let's go back to verse 16. Peter writing, he said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God, he, Jesus here, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. This is the the account of the transfiguration. 
Okay, so verse 19, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The King James says we also have a more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for prophecy never came, the King James says, never came in old time. The idea is never came before at some time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, so keep that word there, moved, in mind as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that they were moved here? Keep that word in mind as we go now to Acts chapter 26. I think this is a really good illustration of how God superintended, if you will, over the writing of his word and not dictating it per se, but certainly influencing it, having control over it. Okay, so um, here in in Acts chapter 26, Paul had opportunity to defend himself against his accusers before King Agrippa. And at the end of Paul's testimony, um, picking up in verse, actually, what do I have there? Let's look at Acts 26. Yeah, Uh, the the verse of focus is in uh, chapter 27. But in chapter 26, verse 28, it says, Then Agrippa, chapter 26, verse 28, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except these chains. Okay, so so that's, let's see here. Okay, let me just read that. Um, except these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice um, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is... And when it was decided that uh, they should, we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, okay? So then after several ship transfers, so they're out to sea, heading towards Italy. And let's look at verse 9. They've... Uh, transferred from ship to ship a number of times by this time. Now, when much time had been spent, the sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end in disaster and with much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. Hmm. That's kind of common, isn't it? People don't want to hear what, what God's word has to say, but they have other things in mind. Verse 12, And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire of putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon, something like that. Verse 15, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, 
we let her drive. That, that phrase there in English, let her drive, is the same Greek word translated moved by the Holy Spirit in First Peter 1, or Second Peter 1, that we just looked at, okay? When it says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So think of that as a ship on the sea in a storm, and in this case, they let her drive. You get the impression that that ship is under the influence of the sea and where it's going. And so that's, in a way, what all the authors of Scripture were like. They were like that boat on the sea, and as it moved, God moved them or carried them along according to his will so that, so that it would perfectly record it. I hope that gives you a sense of how God did this. Okay, I think that's a very powerful, it helps me, understand a little bit, not totally, but a little bit, how God did that, how he superintended over the humans writing scripture. Okay, now, to confirm this, to see how the Bible backs this up even more, we have a number of examples that I think are very interesting. So, uh, number three, note a few examples where New Testament uh, assigns the Holy Spirit as the author of Old Testament passages. So, we need to move along here. Um, go to Mark chapter 12 and I think I'm going to have to be choosy you can certainly on your own look at all these and you can see the way I did in your notes I I have Mark 12 and then an arrow to Psalm 110 so it relates to Psalm 110 so that's the idea of each one of these so Mark chapter 12 verse 36 okay um, says Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Verse 36, for David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls himself Lord, how is he then his son? And The common people heard him gladly. So Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So as as Mark is writing this, he refers to, he's saying, for David, verse 36, for David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. So he wrote it, but it was the Holy Spirit that had him write it, if you will. Okay, let's see. Um, okay, let's, you're in, where are you? You're in Mark. Uh, turn to, to Acts. Let's look at that one. Acts chapter 4. Again, all these that I have there are examples of this very kind of thing. Hmm, or does it? Okay, so Acts chapter 4. Verse 24 says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Yeah, okay. Verse 25, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the heathen rage and the people plot vain things? 
the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So Psalm, and then you can link that to Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So now that passage in Acts does not directly say the Holy Spirit, but it does say, Lord, you are God, and you who, by the mouth of your servant David, have said. So it's like, yes, David wrote it, but it was God who said it. God is the author of it. Okay, one more, one more. We'll do one more. Hebrews, uh, and we're chasing you around. You might want to... Yeah, don't worry about it. (laughs) I'll refer to Psalm 95, but let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to say this is a fault, but I hope it's a good fault. That I just have a hard time not keeping to read Scripture. Okay, Hebrews 3 and chapter 7, uh, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the wilderness when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. So that, re- that references, that's referring back to Psalm 95, which says in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation. So, again, he's saying, verse Hebrews 7, Therefore, the Holy Spirit says. Now, as the author of Hebrews, who humanly wrote it down, but it was the Holy Spirit who said it. It can't get much more clear than that, actually. And again, there are, there are other examples there, Hebrews 10 and Jeremiah 31. Um, okay, so, number four. Yet, despite that, We see that the Holy Spirit is the author of it, okay? Yet, at times, Scripture openly shows styles, emotions, and expressions of the human authors. We cannot deny that God used human beings. So turn to Romans chapter 9 for that one. This is just one example. There are many, but this one is maybe one of the more powerful ones in terms of the language in the sense of the emotions that Paul is is through is experiencing. Romans chapter 9, he says, this is Paul writing, of course, he says, I tell the truth, of course, that's important, in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. I mean, that, that's powerful language. You could tell even, you know, he has great sorrow, continual grief. And boy, I hold Paul up high for his thought here. I don't know that I could do that. You know, he, he would wish that he could be accursed for his, from Christ for his brethren. That's love. That's amazing love that Paul had. Um, so that's, again, so we see the Holy Spirit superintended over it. He actually wrote it, yet he used humans to get it written. We proceed on to other aspects of the bibliology. It's important that we ask the question that might, we might be asked, 
They might say, doesn't Paul's reference to all Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 actually reference the Old Testament? Certainly at that time, the New Testament wasn't put together yet, and it does seem to hint to the Old Testament. And then also 2 Peter 1, where he says prophecy of old time was no private interpretation and so forth. That also seems to refer to the Old Testament. So how can we be sure, I think that's your next note here, number, letter C, how can we know whether the New Testament is inspired on the same level, that your blank there is level, on the same level as the Old Testament? Since uh, 2 Timothy and first, 2 Peter seem to refer to the Old Testament. So in response, consider this. Second Peter chapter 3, turn to that if you would. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. So consider that letter A, Peter in this chapter equates the prophecy of the Old Testament with the commandments of the New Testament apostles. Okay, the New Testament apostles, that's your blank there. In verse 2 of that passage where it says, okay, uh, beloved, I now, in verse 1, beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir you up your pure minds by one way of reminder, by way of reminder, verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's putting them together in the same sentence. Be mindful of the words spoken by the prophets and also of the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. So he puts it on the same level, same level of authority. Okay, and then number B under that implies, Peter in that chapter implies that Paul's writings, that's your blank, Paul's writings were as authoritative and assumed inspired as the Old Testament scriptures. So you're in Second Timothy chapter 3, go back to verse 13, uh, yeah, we'll read there. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, took for, uh, look for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long-suffering of the Lord of salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest, or the King James says, other, the other scriptures. So he's saying that Paul's letters, all his epistles are scriptures okay he's saying the other scriptures it's important that that word is there other scriptures or the rest of the scriptures it combines them with scriptures so that's pretty neat he he equates prophecy of the old testament with the commandments of the new testament apostles and he also says that paul's writings are as authoritative as the old old um testament scriptures uh, old testament prophecies so then finally number two Paul puts Luke's gospel on the Paul puts Luke's gospel on the same level as Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And you don't need to turn you can if you could get there quickly, but 1 Timothy 5:17 um, well yeah, Paul's writing he says, "Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And I guess, yeah. So what you want to note there in your notes maybe is that the first part of that quote, you should not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, is from Deuteronomy 25.4. Okay? But then the second half, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is from Luke 10.7. So he's taking an Old Testament verse and a New Testament, a gospel passage, and he's putting them together as scripture that's quoted. All right, and then finally, we got to fly up here. We'll try and... <laughs> He's very active, too. Um, okay, so one last thing to consider. The Gospels were not written for decades after Christ's death, okay, and resurrection. In the case of the Gospel of John, it was over five decades from the time Jesus rose till John actually wrote his Gospel. So how in the world did he remember all that, all that happened to write it down so perfectly? Well, turn to John chapter 14. And we are out of time, so we're going to do this very quickly. John chapter 14. Okay, I'm going to, I had more for context, but we're just going to skip down to verse 25. This is, of course, Jesus speaking here. He says, these things I have spoken, he's speaking to his, uh, his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, where, have we heard about the Holy Spirit in this study so far? Yes. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's going to come. He'll bring to remembrance all these things. Don't worry about it. You don't have to remember it all. The Holy Spirit will bring it to your memory. Go a couple pages further back uh, to the back of your Bible. John 16. John 16 and verse 12. Jesus again speaking. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak uh, on his own authority, but will... But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So it's the Holy Spirit that makes all these, you know. The Holy Spirit is the author. Well, God is the author. Jesus is the author. The Holy Spirit is the author. But also, he's the one who brought to remembrance all these things so that the apostles and the disciples could write what they wrote. So, all that in summary, we know the Bible is true because it is from God, who is perfectly true, and we, we know that it came from God because the Bible claims that it did as the Holy Spirit superintended over men who recorded what God wanted revealed to humanity in the words he wanted written. Wow. We got it in there. I hope that was helpful. You know, I hate to rush through that like that, but I knew it was going to be tight because we had a lot of scripture to cover, but hope that was helpful. Let's close in prayer. Remember, oh, I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit also enables disciples to remember the events of Jesus' life to record in the Gospels, to record in the Gospels. Thank you, because I, I failed to do that. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired, that you superintended over it, and that we can trust it. And we'll get into that more in coming weeks. We pray now you would bless the service to come. We pray that it would be... Uh, 
that our worship of you would be pleasing in your sight, that it would all be for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.